Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and wishing everybody a happy, healthy, and prosperous new year. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. On this first podcast of 2023, we're going to take a look at what happened since our last program in mid-December, like Southwest's meltdown and Boeing's decision to skip its customary winter break to complete and deliver as many 737 MAX jetliners to customers as possible. But our focus is also going to be on what the big stories of the coming year are going to be, whether on the defense or on the commercial side. Joining us today to discuss all this and more, as they do every week, are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuza of the independent London equity research firm Agency Partners, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Guys, Happy New Year, and thanks so very much for joining us. It's great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thank you very much, Nvalga. Happy New Year to everyone. Absolutely. All the best for 2023 and great to be back on the show. Uh, indeed, a, a pleasure having everybody back on. But before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And we'd like to welcome aboard two new sponsors, HII and GE Aerospace. HII will be sponsoring our broader coverage and our Cabot Ships podcast, and GE Aerospace will be sponsoring our new Air Power podcast, as well as Cabot Ships. And check out our weekly podcasts, Cabot Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and launching soon will be our new Air Power podcast, co-hosted by yours truly, and our new contributing editor, J.J. Gertler, who will join us later in the program for a preview of the new show. With that, uh, Ron, uh, start us off. Uh, you know, obviously, it's been a couple of weeks since our last, uh, about two weeks since our last program. Walk us through what the major market news was over the holidays, and Sash, want to get uh, yours also. Uh, kind of a, a quiet end to the year, but in the at the end of the year, there is always kernels and seeds on what people uh, are going to be focusing on for the year ahead. What were what were sort of the key takeaways as the year ended that goes also beyond the Southwest meltdown, uh, in part because of their antiquated uh, computer structure? Although in fairness, uh, you know there was also some awful weather. Uh, out there in the country. So it's very easy to blame some of this on, on um, you know, reservation systems. Although two weeks after the weather passed, it's fair to say that there was a bigger challenge the airline was 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 facing. Walk us through sort of the big, big stories uh, as we ended 2022 and headed into 2023. Yeah, I mean, there's you know, a couple of key things, right? Um, one, as you mentioned, uh, Boeing delivered a, a bunch of 737s late in the year. Uh, part of that due to the fact that at least in production, they didn't have the Christmas shutdown. Um, by our guess, guesstimate, uh, they, they probably did something in the, in the high 40s in terms of deliveries of 737s. So that probably puts them somewhere around 370 plus or minus uh, uh, 737 maxes for the year, some, something like that, which will be a good good number for them. Uh, so that, that's good news. Uh, when you look back on the performance this year in, in 2022, about 70% of the, the A&D stocks that we cover outperformed the S&P, uh, which was down about uh, 20%. And, and that compares last year where 
only about a quarter of our group uh, outperformed the S&P, and the S&P was up almost 27%. You know, interestingly, the top five performers in our coverage was a it was an interesting mix, not surprisingly, very heavily, heavily weighted towards defense. The number one performer was Northrop Grumman, up uh, about 40 percent, uh, then Lockheed Martin uh, up in the high 30s, Parsons Corporation up in the high 30s, Huntington Ingalls up about 25 percent. And then rounding out the top five was Bombardier, which was up 24 percent, uh, given the strength in the business debt market and the delivering of their of their balance sheet. And then sort of the flip side of that, well, the, the bottom performers in our group uh, were Astra, uh, space company, launch company. They were down almost 95%. Terran Orbital was down 85%. Virgin Galactic was down 75%. Spire, another Earth imagery company, was down 70%. And Rocket Lab was down about 70%. Um, so it was a, not a great year for the small space companies, but defense did quite well. And uh, you know, broadly, you know, the A and D group collectively outperform the market um, pretty meaningfully. Um, and, so, And and uh, we should point out, right, uh, we uh, said uh, on our last podcast uh, of the year that we expected L3 Harris to uh, make a move on Aerojet Rocketdyne, uh, and that's exactly what happened. How did the street respond to that transaction? Obviously, a pretty big, pretty important deal, and more evidence that Chris Kubasic is, is fundamentally trying to change the nature uh, of L3 Harris. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was, I, I would say, not warmly received by the market. I mean, the stock was was broadly down on it. Um, I don't think it was that big a surprise, um, you know, given commentary from, from management and some leaks in the press and various things. I don't think anybody was all that surprised by the announcement when it happened, but um, the stock didn't rally on that news. Um so we'll, we'll see where it goes. Um, you know, interestingly enough, L3 Harris was one of the poorer performing larger defense companies that, that we followed this year. Um, and I think a lot of that just has to do with change and uncertainty and, and that kind of thing and maybe messaging to the street and so on and so forth. Sash, uh, give us your sense on sort of the big stories of the year uh, as we brought 22 to an end and ushered in 23. I'm very inspired by Ron's comments about the small space companies. Or the the the, um, the the you know the the commercial space companies having had a really pretty torrid time last year, and I'm just interested in that for two reasons. One is that there weren't any super poor performers among the major European aerospace and defence companies. You know, you didn't have that bifurcation of share price performance uh, that Ron was talking about uh, just now. So you know, that's the first thing that was interesting. And the second thing that was interesting is that. The commercial space industry has normally or has previously done pretty well out of uh, wars. You know, if you remember, the Iridium satellite constellation had gone spectacularly bust um, uh, in the uh, early 2000s and was totally rescued uh, by the wars first in uh, Iraq and then uh, Afghanistan because the US government and every other allied government just used the Iridium capacity uh, massively to uh, compensate for a, for a lack of um, uh, spot availability over those two particular theatres. So actually, you know, the, the, them and, and Global Star did really, really well. And therefore, you know, Prime Face, you might have expected the smaller space companies to, to start to do very well from what is clearly an enormous need by the Ukrainians and their, uh, you know, the, the countries that are backing them for imagery uh, into East Ukraine and, and, and into Russia. It doesn't seem to be happening yet. Very, very interesting. Let's see if that changes over the next 12, 18 months or so. But I, I wouldn't have expected that. No, listen, otherwise, you, you know, European A&D performance last year was 
pretty straightforward. The commercial aerospace companies did okay because, um, but you know, okay is is up in the ten to twenty percent uh, range, and that reflects the fact that they are coming out of COVID and production rates are going up, even though, as you know, we're going to talk later, you know, and, and we've talked about extensively at the end of last year, you know, there have been bumps. And the defence companies um, pretty much doubled. Uh, certainly the, you know, the small, small and mid-cap defence companies doubled and the uh, large-cap defence companies were up in general 50% plus and sometimes plus plus. It was, it was a very, very straightforward uh, set of, of performances. What was really interesting, you know, since we last uh, recorded this podcast was that we talked about there being a, a lot of orders announced in Europe. I mean, you know, we counted over 10 billion of orders just in the, the second week of December. And actually that whole process uh, continued. Uh, you know, there was a, um, uh, you know, Saab got uh, extension of Swedish mine hunters. They got um, uh, more orders for the uh, orders for, for the Enlor anti-tank missile. Um, Ryan Mittal had orders for uh, uh, Ukraine for trucks in particular, um, but also, oh yeah, and, and Saab had a, an order for anti-aircraft missiles in Finland. So the trend of orders picking up at the end of the year was very, very marked in Europe. Individually, they're small. You can always argue in Europe that there is a sort of use it or lose it feeling about a lot of defence budgets, and that doesn't do, you know, reflect terribly well on any country that, that just places orders like that. But our feeling was that the, the defence companies in Europe ended 2022 with, you know, very much with a, with a tailwind uh, in terms of order intake. And that's going to make the comments they make at the time of their fully results, Q, Q4 results in, in February, early March, very, very interesting indeed. My feeling is that, you know, they're going to be more positive than probably you know investors would have expected even a couple of weeks ago. And uh, in terms of uh, Airbus deliveries, where did Airbus uh, end the year? Obviously, Boeing was racing uh, to uh, make uh, as many deliveries as possible. And uh, the outlook for some pretty big orders, right? I mean, United placed a big order. There's an expectation, again, as we discussed last year, as well as Air India. Uh, where did Airbus uh, end the year in comparison to Boeing? And whether both of these companies can keep it up next year, given uh, the kind of supplier uh, challenges that they've both had on the engine side and elsewhere through the supply chain. We don't know where Airbus has ended 2022 because we won't know that for another five, six days or so. They should, um, uh, they, they, they haven't yet reported their full year order intake. Clearly, we do know because they told us back in December that they were going to end the year in terms of deliveries below 700 rather than at or above uh, 700. Um, you know, uh, that probably means somewhere around sort of 690 level. That's still a, res a respectable um, level, but it would suggest that they didn't quite get the, uh, the, or the December or indeed the, the post-Christmas rush that, uh, that Boeing did. But I don't think there's any huge shame in that. As for orders, I mean, Airbus's problem, frankly, is it, it, it's not orders it needs at the moment, it's execution on deliveries. It's got an enormous backlog. Its backlog is 50, nearly 50% bigger than uh, than uh, Boeing's once you sort of strip out various um, uh, slightly dubious uh, legacy orders and so forth. Um, they've got a very aggressive plan for, for raising rates, but they aren't able or they haven't been able to do it quite at the rate that they wanted to yet. You know, there's there's just too much grit in the uh, in, in, in the in the process. And I think that's going to be a theme. Uh, and, you know, I'd, I'd be really interested in, in Ron Richards comments on that, because I think it's going to be a theme that we're going to see persisting through 2023. 
interesting uh, grit uh, comment uh, there. Uh, speaking of grit, uh, Richard, you know, talk to us a little bit about sort of commercial performance um, and specifically about uh, Southwest. Um, the company has come under extraordinary criticism for uh, the collapse of its systems. We've discussed outages uh, on this program podcast for years, and anybody who knows Southwest knows um, they allowed more people to travel. Uh, right, uh, the birth of the airline with Herb Kelleher was was a, was a transformational uh, event, uh, and yet um, the commercial airplane, you know, air travel business is a very price conscious business. And there are all sorts of ways of doing it. Unitary fleet is one way of doing it. Maybe investing a little bit less money on your backend systems is another way of doing it and trying to make it up on peanuts uh, and snacks, right? How, you know, the transportation secretary actually came out and said, hey, we've got to do something about this. And members of Congress are piling on uh, as well, uh, given how many people were inconvenienced at first because of bad weather, but then obviously something beyond bad weather uh, when one very important airline was not able to recover as quickly. What what does you know, what were some of the story takeaways in in this last two week period uh, that you think were were most important and how people need to think about them? Yeah, you know, I mean, they're the target du jour for people who are unhappy. And of course, there are many people unhappy, unhappy, not just because of the specifics of this uh, abysmal experience, but just because, you know, no one really loves the treatment they get on low cost carriers or indeed the entire air travel system. Um, now, they made themselves an even bigger target, of course, by, you know, taking all of the aid that all airlines got. Uh, to get through the pandemic and then perhaps not keeping all the people in place that they perhaps should have kept uh, during the pandemic. Um, and of course, there was a, you know, a lot of reportage that perhaps it was the point to point nature of their system that allowed itself to just crash and burn rather than, um, you know, a, a hub and spoke system. I think that might have been a bit overreported, perhaps, um, you know, because frankly, it, none of it explains why they weren't able to recover a day or two after the storm. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, they've made themselves a very big target for the ire of regulators and consumers. And it's going to, right or wrong, it's going to take them a lot of hard work to get back. It means a lot of discounting. It means a lot of vouchers, whatever else. Um because, you know, this is an airline that, frankly, had built up perhaps more brand equity than any other U.S. Uh, domestic uh, carrier. Uh, and here they are going from one of the most highly regarded to, you know, well, again, the target of everyone's annoyance and anger. Uh, and and we should point out also uh, a, a carrier. Uh, I mean, we don't get any money nor support from uh, from Southwest. Right. I mean, so this is, uh, uh, you know, not a not a. Uh, uh, you know, pitch for Southwest, uh, but, you know, also uh, have a reputation for, for being aside from uh, some of its backend systems, actually a very good, uh, a very good uh, air carrier. Uh, yeah. With, if I could also some... point out, you know, the other day, of course, Frontier came out and said, you know, we're so ultra low cost that we're going to abolish all of the people you might want to talk to. <laughs> it was, and, and the one thing I said to people as well, it's inconceivable that Southwest would do that, you know, at, the end of the day, it, they've, they've got to have some kind of relationship with the sort of folks who don't book everything, not using a, using a, you know, a, an online portal or a chat bot or whatever else. Uh, and, and it, it made absolutely no difference. So the people who, you know, frontier getting rid of all, uh, 
customer service representatives on 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 you know telephone customer service representatives absolutely got no heat from that and uh, and southwest uh, took it all because of uh, what what happened uh, Ron and Sash, uh, really quickly on this. I mean, obviously, Europe uh, gets along with um, um, low-cost carriers uh, in the extreme in a way I think that the U.S. market would be jarring for the U.S. market. Uh, but Ron, re- really quickly, I mean, what what's the street's sort of perception and the folks you talk to about whether or not uh, there's going to be more regulation, right? I mean, folks are saying that there should be stipulations for back-end systems. And right, I mean, once we get you know, in, you know, and with regulation comes cost. I mean, it costs an X amount of money to safely fly people from point A to point B. Uh, and at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do and try to do that, right? You do it through, you know, harmonized fleets, for example, as Southwest tries to do. I mean, what, what, are, what are the takeaways from your standpoint as we go into this and, and what it means going forward at a time when um, folks on both sides of the Atlantic are, I think, primed and a little bit eager maybe uh, to uh, opt more for regulation than deregulation. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not the airline analyst, but I, mean, I can just give me one guy's opinion. Um, Southwest has been a very safe airline for a very long time, including this most recent event. Um, it was horribly inconvenient for those involved. And, um, you know, I'm known to complain about airlines when they don't serve me well. Um, so, I mean, I understand where everybody was coming from, but um, it, it wasn't, a safety event, uh, an airplane didn't come down. Uh, and, and my sense is ultimately, if there was a, a safety of operation, safety of flight, that kind of event, that would really you know, auger towards uh, some increased regulation. Just you had a bad storm, the airline didn't handle it well. There's gonna be some tail of, as Richard mentioned, of recovery. So it'll have some expense and some rebuilding of grand equity tied to it. Because ultimately Southwest has got this this aura of the friendly airline, right? I mean, their flight attendants right. kind of sing everything and whatever, it is what it is. Um, they have to rebuild that. But my, my, my gut sense is, and I could be wrong, uh, you're, you're not going to see a, a waterfall of regulation or this and that, because in the end, it was horribly inconvenient, but it wasn't a safety issue. Sash, uh, anything folks here uh, can be learning from European air carriers that like Ryanair and, and uh, you know, EasyJet that have uh, made reputations for getting you somewhere for 20 pounds, even if it <laughs> um, <laughs> means a lot well, yeah, of yeah, fees yeah. on the side. I mean, t- typically for Ryanair, the, um, you know, the snack that you have at the airport costs you more than you paid for the seat. Um, that's certainly been the case for a very, very long time, but they've gotten much smarter about charging for extras and so forth. Um, I, you know, it's very interesting because Southwest has this reputation for being a low-cost carrier, but actually, in many respects, it's behaving more like a, if not a full-cost carrier, certainly a fuller-cost carrier. And then you've got what you know, claimed to be the ultra-low-cost carriers, which have basically inherited Southwest mantle before. So you're actually very fortunate in the States. You've got, th- you've got four full or fuller cost carriers and then a slew of upper of, of upper and coming um ultra low cost carriers to, to choose from whereas in europe there are three low there are three high cost carriers air france group lufthansa group iag british airways group um and you know a couple of in-betweens easyjet is becoming a fuller cost carrier although they hate to admit it Ryanair, i think is still low cost whiz is clearly very very low cost um and, and it, but you know that's actually not a bad but you know you, you you've not you know it's not a bad industry structure i was very struck i visited 
Chinese airlines. Um, you know, it feels a way back now because it was it was pre-COVID. And talking to them, they said um, three airlines is the right number to have because that's what they have, or you have in the States. They were thinking then about, you know, uh, pre-Southwest, and that's what you have in Europe. So we in China will have the, the you know, what are affectionately known as the three ugly sisters, um, uh, uh, Air China, China East, and China South. And there's HNA, which sort of came somewhere in between, and then a, a collection of very, very small uh, regionals and um, uh, individual state carriers. Um, seems to be the way these, these uh, situations turn out. It's clearly not great for us as consumers, but um, uh, we don't have a great lift set. I don't think regulators are going to be able to uh, change the structure and insist on you know, back-end systems. I think that's absolutely ludicrous. I do, totally agree with Ron. Unless it's the safety of flight thing, let, let the traveller beware, and we should do. I want to get to the uh, year ahead, but Ron, I want to uh, just follow up with you uh, on whether or not you think Boeing uh, is going to be able to deliver at this rate going into the new year. Uh, No, Um, you know, ultimately it was a strong push at the end of the year. It's not an uncommon thing in the industry across the industry. Um, And it, you know, uh, took a commitment from Boeing to do that and, and their employees and, you know, good for them. Uh, their goal, their stated goal, has been to get the production line stabilized at 31 per month and deliver aircraft off the line and air and aircraft out of inventory. Um, if they work their way towards, you know, the higher 30s, maybe the low 40s, sometime by the end of the year into next year, um, and in a very stable fashion, um, that'll be a good achievement, right? Uh, I think that's what most most folks are expecting. But are they going to be plodding along, delivering, you know, uh, in the high um, 40s and 737s as we go through all next year? No, absolutely not. Uh, but will they work towards that um, at a more steady cadence? Probably they will, right? I mean, ultimately things will start to, to get better. I think that the question, this is a question for everybody that certain we'll talk about, is how long is that really going to take? Because there's all kinds of issues at hand that are out of Boeing's control and you know, in the supply chain and workforce and so on and so forth. And that's the bugaboo that's impacting everybody. Um. Let's uh, go to looking at the year ahead and what you guys are going to, uh, what you guys think are going to be the big uh, defense, uh, as well as commercial uh, stories uh, of the year. Uh, markets still looking at a tough economic year, even if some of the numbers look better uh, at uh, the end of the year. Ron, take us away on what you think uh, the big stories of the year are going to be uh, from your perspective, uh, both uh, again on the defense, but as well as on the commercial uh, side, as well as on the space side. Yeah, it's, it's a good question, Bago. I mean, it's it, it's always tempting to kind of look backwards to look forwards, right? And uh, if you go back two years ago, business aviation, it was really, you know, business aviation was the big story. It was the year of aviation. And then last year was really the big defense year. Um, you know, it's really tempting to say maybe this will be the big commercial year. Um, but I, I think the consensus view among investors is, and I'll say it, and then I'll add my own little spin to it that you know we're in a recession going into a recession that you know the first half of the year will be uh, more difficult than the second half of the year and that markets will do better in the second half of the year than the first half of the year that you might want to be positioned in more defensive positions including defense and other defensive things for the first half of the year and then maybe in the second half of the year you'd rotate into more economically sensitive things that is the consensus view therefore most likely not always but most likely it'll be wrong <laughs> um, so, so how does it, how's it going to play out? I'm not exactly sure. And, and, and 
you know, as we've gone into 2023, one of the things we've tried to think very hard about, it's been a, a difficult, um, you know, uh, problem to solve is defense did quite well off of very low valuations. But when you have large defense contractors that have outperformed the market massively, um, you know, can they, can they do that again in another year? Yes, but the technical setup is very difficult. Uh, but in a backdrop where defense spending is improving, um, you're going to have more things delivered because of both of uh, replenishing inventories uh, because what's gone on in the Ukraine, but also everything that's going on in the Pacific Rim, right? So it's a, it's a pretty right. wholesome defense environment, but you also have a civil recovery going on. So there's there's a tension going on there. And, and even among investors, there's not even agreement upon, you know, do you want to be exposed to OE or aftermarket? And you can make arguments for both. So it's, you know, as, as we you know, look at the tea leaves in the next year, it's a, it's a pretty sort of nebulous cloud of, of what could happen. But I can say this confidently that, you know, the, the expectation is the first half of the year will be economically more difficult than the second half of the year. That'll be reflected in the market. And then it, it just depends on how the market wants to position itself for the second half recovery, if indeed that's how it plays out. And and is there uh, any congressional uncertainty that's also playing into the way folks? I mean, we talked about that a little bit. I mean, obviously, at the time that we uh, tape this, uh, Kevin McCarthy has not yet been named as uh, the uh, Speaker of the House. We're fairly uh, uh, amazing that that has not yet happened. And he continues to try to appeal to the right uh, of the party and give them all manner of concessions, raising concerns about how this is going to play out. Um, any, do you know, do you think that Congress is going to be a bigger storyline over the coming 12 months? Well, if you look, you look back on the political control analysis that we do, the, the way the election played out would suggest that at a minimum, you'll see more headlines leading to that, right? I mean, in the end, you know, will the, the fundamental, fundamentals actually go there? We'll see. My guess is probably not. But will there be some headlines that could be maybe a little bit confident shaking towards defense? Yeah, there, there could be. Um, so are investors really thinking about that yet? Not yet, but, um, you know, market opens tomorrow. So, so we'll see, I would imagine, <laughs> I would, I would imagine things are going to start a little bit slow this year, just because of the timing of the holidays and so on and so forth. So probably the real first full market week will be next week, not this week. Um, but, um, you know, I think that will probably get into the, the investor psyche as we, as we roll into the next week or two. And uh, just to point out to our audience uh, that actually our full normalized coverage will start uh, next uh, Monday. This week uh, starts with this podcast and we will end it uh, with the Washington uh, Roundtable and our full coverage uh, resumes uh, next uh, week. Uh, Sash, uh, give us give us your sense on the defense and aerospace side and what you're expecting to see uh, over the coming 12 months. What are the big stories? I'm feeling positive about both civil and defense. And that is notwithstanding the likelihood, in fact, the almost, you know, the certainty of recession, particularly in, in the UK and, and Europe. Um, and here's why. Civil, first of all, civil is driven by backlogs and civil is driven by very, very high fuel prices. And we've already referred to the fact that we have a small number of airlines that are performing very well at our hour, the, the traveller's expense. I don't see that um, uh, you know, that mismatch changing. Uh, the airlines can afford to buy new aircraft. They need to because fuel, fuel price is very high. The OEMs have got enormous backlogs. Their problem is delivering them, but their problem isn't going out and winning uh, more orders at the moment, if, if anything, or, almost the opposite. So of 
all the industrials out there, and indeed, of you know, most stocks that we look at in uh, you know European um, European markets, civil aerospace stocks that have got fantastic visibility and are relatively economically insensitive look pretty good. The only thing they're beaten by is defence, and that's because I think 2023 we are going to see the industrial ramp up in defence actually come through in a way that it didn't until the very last months and sometimes weeks of 2022. You know, uh, let's go back uh, um, nine, 11 months or so. Investors spent the whole of the Q1 earnings season, most of the Q2 earnings season, a big part, part of Q3, saying to company, defence companies, where are the orders? Where's the business? Why are you not benefiting from the war in Ukraine and the, the rearmament going on in the Asia Pacific? Um, because the companies couldn't point to the orders. Well, as we've discussed uh, earlier on in this uh, podcast, but also at the very end of last year, the orders started to come through big time in, in, in December. And I think that process is going to continue. And all of the indications coming out, particularly of European governments, but clearly also out of the US, is that orders for consumables in particular, and I think consumables are what the rearmament process is about. I'm, I, I'm not overly worried about um, large capital items, but consumables, ammunition, spares in particular, orders for that are really beginning to ramp up. We had some fascinating discussions with um, companies we cover at the very, very end of December. I mean, literally as we were, you know, as, as the break was about to, to happen. And they were saying that they are starting to get requests from both their ultimate customers, if they are a supplier into the defense industry, but also governments for price and size going out years. I, governments are beginning to realize that the, the, the rearmament process is a multi-year process. They've got to be looking at uh, orders for consumables that, that aren't done on an annual budget basis, but are on a half decade or a decade long basis. And they're now exploring very, very intensely with suppliers. What does it take? How long does it take? How much does it cost? You know, what's the process to get this going? And we talked to companies um, just before Christmas who were saying that they're considering whether to double their, their productive capacity or triple it because of the, the, the interest they're seeing. So I think 2023 in defence terms is the, is the year of the defence production build-up um, in a way we just haven't seen yet. Of the two sides of this industry, I would still put my money on defence companies in 2023, but I don't think that the, 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 the gap between defence and civil is going to be anything like as wide this year as it was last year. Um, uh, Richard, uh, your sense on... Uh, what the big stories are going to be. And one thing we didn't mention was the absolutely massive F-35 contract uh, that was uh, issued just before the new year to Lockheed Martin uh, for 398 jets, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, was was in the number uh, for, uh, what was it, a $32 billion contract? Am I getting that about right? I'm going off a of memory here on the lot 17, what a 1517 uh, agreement. Yeah, that's right. Um, and that was an interesting one because uh, in 15 through 17 doesn't include anything like the jets the market actually wants. Um, you know, it basically has, I think, 145 for one lot, 130 for another, close to that for a third. And, uh, you know, these are the numbers that you'd expect if it weren't for the 200 people were the 200 orders that were expected to be placed for 
Germany, Finland, Canada, Switzerland, et cetera, et cetera, Czech Republic, whoever else over the past 12 months. So um, big question about how you, what kind of contracting vehicle um, has those jets added to it and, and when they factor in and whether or not uh, Lockheed Martin actually can or ever will get past the 156 production cap it's set for annual deliveries. And even there, returning to the, the number one theme for the coming year, that massive disconnect between markets and actual industry capacity, you know, we have the year ending and it looks like Lockheed Martin has delivered 141 F-35s, exactly one jet fewer than the previous year, and certainly not the 150 or so that they were expecting. Um, That's not good. Now, yeah, but I mean, I it, I think it's incredible that there are almost now 900 F-35 jets uh, that are in service. I mean, that is just mind-boggling. It is uh, in in terms of uh, the progress the program has made. No, it is, and you know, obviously, within the lives of the you know the professional careers of many of our colleagues, it was somehow debatable that the F-35 would succeed, and now, yeah, it's it's 900 and. And obviously, we're going to see at least three, four thousand built, uh, probably more. You know, it's it's really just a question of timing. But again, getting back to the theme of the coming year, it's going to be that weird disconnect where what I say as a market expert has very little bearing uh, <laughs> on what the industry actually does. It's become purely a story of production capacity, be it on the supply chain or be it on the the final end or whatever else. And that, on the one hand, I think it does provide a level of insulation against market shock because of the strength of backlogs. I would, I would caution people to remember that commercial backlogs tend to be a lot more fickle than military backlogs. So, you know, if there's a particularly severe recession and a fall off in demand and uh, in air travel demand, and of course, anything that makes fuel cheap again makes less, you know, makes the next generation of jets less attractive too, that could impact that market. But for the most part, yeah, I, I think Sash is right that those backlogs do provide some level of insulation unless there's a serious market shock. And on the military side, it just guarantees a better year uh, across the board. And that's why I think we're going to have a very solid year, but one that's completely disconnected from the actual strength of markets. I, I think this could be one of those. Yes, we see everything go up 10 percent in aggregate or 12 percent or something. But if you look at actual market demands, it, you know, it should have been a 20% year. It's, it's strictly that divert that difference is, of course, strictly because of uh, industry's limited capacity. And again, the F-35 really tells that story pretty eloquently. Um, do, does COVID become a problem uh, this year, uh, as in years? Uh, I mean, it, it, you know, we're up, I think, to what, 1,500 or 1,600 uh, deaths pretty sharp uh, increase. Um, I mean, is this something that becomes an issue again, or are folks simply over it and we're just on track to get, you know, back to that full normalization of travel in 24 that you've been shooting at? Because if you look at it from a Chinese perspective, this could have real ripple effects across the economy. I mean, it's already been 20% reduction uh, in, um you know, supplies from the places that were supplying China, right? I mean, it's the factory of the world, but it gets fed from places, uh, especially in Asia, but also around the world. Uh, and there's been a pretty sharp 
decline in China, and that then has domino effects elsewhere. And we haven't even seen the height of the COVID pandemic and where it might go after as they sort of emerge from lockdown without vaccinations and boosters. Does does COVID at all resurface as an issue over the coming year? And I want to kind of go around the horn on this or or what is sort of the black swan event of the year, right? The the thing that maybe we should just bear in the back of your minds that you guys think um, could emerge uh, out of nowhere and, and, and kind of clobber everybody. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's probably not, it, there's almost certainly a, you know, a strong risk of a black swan of some sort, be it political instability or something in the South China Sea or whatever else, you know, or something coming out of, you know, the, the whole Ukraine uh, horror. Um, but COVID doesn't seem to be it unless there's a new variant. And, uh, you know, right now, Omicron seems to be the dominant variant. Um, even China, I mean, they were, we were bracing for the end of zero covid it might still hit. It looks like it's going to, you know, create an increase in, in cases, although the Chinese are denying that. Um, it, 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 right now, people are just taking it all in stride. And that, that, that may or may not persist. But right now, the, the dominant thinking seems to be whatever, you know, <laughs> no border controls. You know, even China is welcoming people back to travel in China. Um it, it doesn't seem to be a huge risk. It is noteworthy, though, that, you know, the China market has been depressed for so long that it seems to have really clobbered China as a consumer of jetliners. Uh, you know, looking at the past year, um, it looks like they took about 100 jets or something like that compared to their peak of uh, about 350, um, which was even worse than the previous year. So the numbers certainly are showing up and they're, they're not looking good. But in terms of a, a shock moving forward, it, it doesn't appear there's a whole lot of risk uh, from COVID, again, unless there's a new variant. Ron, uh, COVID and potential black swan events, gray swans, yeah, beige I, ones. I, I, <laughs> I wish I knew, right? I mean, I was the guy on the airplane way back in early 2020 who saw someone wearing a mask and using all the spray stuff before the the pandemic broke out thinking they were crazy. So, um, yeah, I, I yeah, if I go, I don't know. I mean, I, I think Richard kind of, kind of hit it. I mean, hopefully there isn't some other very, very, uh, harmful variant. Um, uh, my thinking has been it's behind us. Um, we're just going to plot forward and China will get through its messy situation eventually here. And we'll probably get back to the numbers we all hope to by, by 2024, by the very nature black swan is something you can't predict. So, um, right. who knows where it's going to come from um is there room for one yeah sure um you know the commercial aerospace industry seems to have something that knocks it off track about i don't know once every 10 years we just had a big one so maybe we'll go through uh, another decade here of uh, sort of a peaceful recovery until something else knocks it off track <laughs> that's my hope but uh, but 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 we'll see um i i'm uh, reminded of that dinner uh that you richard uh, and i uh were at you were hosting it at uh, b of a uh, before uh, the uh, annual uh, Defense and Aerospace Conference that you host uh, every year and that we participate in uh, as well. And and one of the people at the dinner said, all right, I'll throw something out there. You know, what if there is a global pandemic and how does the world respond to it? And every, everybody at the table was like, wow. That, and then, uh, you know, it was about six months later, right? Nine, nine, 10, 11 months later, right? A little more than a year later, we were sort of going through it and people were like, wow, that that prediction was ahead of the power curve. So anyway, I, I just thought I'd 
spitball yeah, that because yeah. one of the questions you ask everybody, one of the questions you always ask everybody is, you know, what are the blacks? So I know, Hey, what, what is it? What is it completely off the wall thing that could happen that we should kind of think about? <laughs> anyway, sorry. I thought I'd turn the tables on you yeah, uh, yeah, on, yeah. on that one Who a knew? little bit. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? Uh, Sash, uh, your, uh, your, your sense on all of this from, from COVID to what it is that, you know, you, you've sort of in the middle of the night gone, you know, what we should really be thinking about is. Yeah. Okay. I mean, first of all, excluding China, I think COVID's done. It's, it's endemic. Um, everybody, you know, everybody's got it and nobody cares in the West anymore. But what COVID will do is affect the pace and the linearity of any Chinese recovery domestically and also internationally. And I think that Chinese capacity numbers um, are going to bounce around wildly, at least in the first quarter of this year and probably the first half of this year, as the country goes from a zero COVID policy, and that really didn't work terribly well economically, to a full COVID policy, which isn't going to work terribly well in, in, in health terms. Um, but other than that, elsewhere, you know, I think I, I genuinely think we're, we're, we're through COVID now, absent any major new um, variant, and it would have to be a really major new variant. Uh, but, you know, we, we, we've got jabs and broadly they work. I dislike the term black swan events. I, I, I think I think economists have got a lot to answer for. As someone who does quite a lot of bird watching and understands these things, black swans exist. There's tons of them. They just exist in Australia, period. The idea that a black swan is somehow something unusual, it's not. And the idea that white swans actually occasionally have um, black signets is totally notable. Um but so putting that aside, but I really dislike the term. Um, what do I worry about? I worry about uh, two countries doing things that are objectively dumb, but make sense to them at the time. And we hate putting into our forecasts stuff that are really dumb, but have very, very big if, if events. For Russia, that is still that they lose so badly in Ukraine that they do something with um, uh, non-conventional weapons. Um, whether it's chemical, biolo uh, biological or, or, or radiological, that would have a huge effect on markets and economies, you know, even from where we are now. And for China, it's that for whatever reason, I don't think this is very likely, but of course that's the, def that's the economist's definition of a black swan event. You know, they do something really stupid uh, with regard to Taiwan. And that would, you know, could make China a pariah state, freeze um, economic growth in the Asia Pacific region, and that would have a horrible effect on all of us. Um, the fact that we can identify those both as being events that could have a very big event effect on the rest of us means that they don't have the, the shock effects of uh, the so-called black swan events, but they sure still would be, you know, they're what keep me awake. Um, and I should uh, 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 suggest that folks check out uh, Nigel uh, Gould Davies's uh, essay. He is the senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. And, and he wrote uh, in the New York Times uh, that Putin has no red lines and, and how to be thinking about red lines in this theme uh, of what might uh, or might not push him over the edge. Uh, everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Happy New Year again. Uh, thanks so much for joining us uh, so consistently in 2022 and look forward to 2023. Uh, really appreciate it. Hope you guys have uh, a great week and looking forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much.
Yeah, looking forward to it, Vago, and uh, a happy new year and, and looking forward to hopefully uh, a good 2023. Yeah, thanks so much, Vago. Uh, happy new year to everybody and you know, very much looking forward to uh, doing this through 2023. Yeah, deeply privileged to be on the program and in such great company and uh, to be listened to by a great community. And uh, thanks so much and all the best for the coming year. Thanks very much again. And joining us now is JJ Gertler, who is our new contributing editor and going to be the co-host, along with yours truly, of the Defense and Aerospace Reports weekly air power podcast that is going to debut soon. Uh, JJ, thanks so very much for joining us. Vago, always terrific to be with you. Uh, and an absolute pleasure to have you uh, on the team as somebody who's got uh, Capitol Hill industry uh, as well as Congressional Research Service uh, experience. Anybody who uh, knows you knows that you uh, were the uh, air power, air warfare analyst uh, at the Congressional Research Service for almost a decade. Uh, and uh, you are now with the Teal Group. You replaced Richard Abalafia as overseeing uh, the yearbooks uh, at that uh, great uh, consultancy and indeed are doing some consultancy and advising uh, as, as well. So you bring an enormous amount of uh, wealth of uh, experience uh, to uh, the role. Uh, what is it that we want to accomplish, uh, JJ, with this podcast? Well, Vago, we're in a fascinating moment for air power right now because air power is changing. The dominant form of warfare around the world, 100% of the world being covered by air, has been thought of in very similar ways basically since the Second World War. But now, with the advent of unmanned adjunct aircraft, with the advent of artificial intelligence, with air forces around the world modernizing at a very rapid rate, in part due to some unexpected global circumstances, and with the emergence of strong adversaries in various parts of the world, what air power is and how it works is getting rethought, not just by the United States Air Force, but by air forces and other services that operate aircraft around the world. Uh, and uh, you uh, put your finger on it because in this program, uh, we're going to be hearing um, from uh, government uh, leaders, from military leaders, indeed, uh, probably and most predominantly from the United States Air Force, uh, the, the world's leading uh, air force uh, and air uh, proponents of air power. Uh, but we're also going to be listening, hearing from industry executives as, as well as from allies and partners, and indeed, uh, Army aviators, naval aviators, uh, as, as well as airmen, uh, because we're looking at air power in all of its forms, whether it's coming off the deck of an aircraft carrier, uh, whether it's uh, coming uh, in, an, in an Army uh, context, as we're seeing uh, in the Ukraine war, a lot of debate about the future of Army aviation, uh, with some people saying the helicopter, the air of the helicopter is over. Uh, and uh, U.S. Army aviators pointing out to people, hey, look, the, the Russians are using their aircraft in a way that we simply would not. So it's a little bit early uh, and premature to, to declare the end of it. It's a little bit like the 73 war, right? After the Yom Kippur War, armor was finished uh, because of Sagar missiles, and we found that that's not the case. What are some of the issues uh, and topics that uh, you think uh, we should be delving into in the course uh, of this weekly program? Well, the sky is quite literally the, the limit, or in fact, no limit to what we will be doing. But the Laura Winter would would say that there is a space <laughs> limit to that. But I, I see where you're going with that. Go ahead. Yes, we, we we can go up to the point at which Laura takes over and oversees the rest of us on the downlink podcast. 
But Vago, air forces around the world have studied the United States and the way we operate and have taken away lessons. Only recently has the U.S. started to look at itself and try to learn the same lessons, whether it's how to operate a new generation of aircraft and, frankly, whether they are worth the additional cost, uh, whether the advantages they bring will allow the U.S. to operate in new ways. Well, to what extent can global air services do some of the things the U.S. can already do and how much help are they going to need to be able to operate with us as allies in the future? literally the number of topics are limitless for this podcast. So we're going to take them one at a time, not too big a bite, but each week we'll come to you with the news of the week in air power and some discussions with fascinating guests and heck you and I might get into it a time or two. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm looking forward to spirited discussions as always, <laughs> uh, JJ, and I'm uh, very, very eager uh, to get started. Uh, and we'll keep all of you guys posted uh, as uh, we get ready uh, to launch uh, the program. JJ, thanks uh, very much for joining us and looking forward uh, to getting uh, haze gray and underway or light blue and underway boom and zoom. I don't know how you want to put this, but uh, <laughs> looking forward to getting started. Well, Vago, it's uh, one form of air superiority is what we'll be talking about, but another form, broadcast air super superiority, is what we'll be establishing. As uh, the great retired uh, Lieutenant General Dave Deptula, the Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, who's going to be a regular uh, joining us. Uh, JJ, you have a great aerospace power day. <laughs> and to you, Vago. Thanks so much.